Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, you hear from Liz Weger. She's a blogger living on the island of Bonaire off the coast of Venezuela and a really inspirational, cool story. She was trapped in a marriage she was unhappy in and decided to make the change. And she did it in a big way and has been living on Bonaire now the last 10 years, doing her passion of writing and her blog, The Adventures of Island Girl, is her passion project and she's able to make a living with her writing and is just somebody who's doing the thing that she loves designing a life in the way she wants and somebody that i find tremendously inspirational uh, one other thing that was really cool about liz is that she reached out to me and i want to let you know that you can as well if you are a listener and feel like you have a significant story to share with the audience you know if you're an expat living somewhere or you're an entrepreneur designing your life in the way you've always wanted an adventure or a traveler, I'd love to hear from you and get you on the show. So please feel free to reach out and we can try to make that happen. And also, if you like Misfits and Rejects, it's huge help if you subscribe to Misfits and Rejects. So please pull out your phone and hit that subscribe button. That's really huge help for me on iTunes. And if you make a comment on iTunes about the podcast, that's also tremendously helpful in the ratings of Misfits and Rejects. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Liz Weger. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am joined by Liz Wegerer, the blogger from The Adventures of Island Girl, who lives on a really cool island off the coast of Venezuela, Bonaire, who I'd never heard of before, or a place I'd never heard of before. And she actually reached out to me, and I was really happy to start to learn more about her and, and hear more of her story. And, and it was a very obvious fit for Misfits and Rejects. And, you know, I'm just happy to have her on the show. So, Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, and you know, for the audience, you are born in you were born in Wisconsin and you've been around a little bit. You like you spent some time in Seattle, London, around the world traveling, um but you decided to reside in Bonaire after what? You you'd been there once and then it took like 5 years to get back. Can you kind of give us a little bit of perspective on on that driving force that really we touched upon a little bit pre-episode, but like that thing that really connects you with the place that you're in now. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's surprising to me how it even happened because I was pretty well traveled before I got here. I'd spent a lot of time visiting other countries. So it wasn't like this was the first international uh, destination I'd ever been to, but there was something about coming here that was really different than any other place I'd ever been. Um, and it wasn't just because it was Caribbean and there were palm trees and it was, you know, that typical kind of white sand beach thing. Cause that's not really how it is here. It's a little bit different, but, um, I came here as a reward for learning how to sc- getting certified to be a scuba diver, uh, after about a decade with my ex-husband of cold winter vacations in the mountains, which I'm certainly not complaining about. It was really great fun, but I was ready for warm tropical beaches and turquoise water. So he promised if I learned to get learn, get certified uh, to scuba dive, which I was pretty afraid of, we could start taking Caribbean vacations. So I did. And uh, I happened to have a friend from college who was um, 
coming to Bonaire and with her boyfriend at the time. And she messaged me and said, hey, if you want to join us, you can tag along. And I had no idea where Bonaire was. I had never heard of it. I didn't have any expectations of what it would be like. Uh, but I said yes, because I knew it was January in um, Wisconsin. And I was thinking it would be so nice to go somewhere warm. So we tagged along and arrived at this unknown tiny little island. And, I ha- and something weird happened. It was the weirdest thing that's ever happened. I can't explain it. And it still doesn't make any sense to me today. But um, when I got off the plane, and it's a really small airport uh, without jetways, typical Caribbean kind of airport where they push the stairs up to the plane and then they open the doors and you file out and go down the stairs and you walk across the tarmac in the morning weather. And it was a red-eye flight at the time. So we arrived and the sun was just rising and the wind was blowing because it's really windy here almost year-round. And uh, I just... I literally popped out of the doorway of the plane and I I took one step onto the top of the stairs and I looked around and something in my body just, just said to me involuntarily, this is where you need to be. This, this is, is your calling. This is the place that you need to be. Uh, And, and I was caught off guard, obviously, because all I was expecting was a scuba vacation and a nice tan. Uh, So I I, I did the vacation. I didn't tell anyone how I was feeling. I just thought, well, this is weird, but it didn't go away the whole week I was here. And, and so I enjoyed the vacation. I enjoyed hanging out with my friends and I went diving and I did all sorts of cool stuff. And then it came time to go home and I was really, really bummed out about having to leave. I felt like when I left, that like part of my heart was being ripped out and I was completely, uh, I didn't even know how to deal with that feeling because I'd never felt like that about a place. Uh, but it, that's how it happened. And that's, that's the first thing that told me that this place was going to have a bigger impact on my life than just a week scuba diving vacation. And I certainly uh, wasn't prepared to never come back. And so that kind of drove all my actions from that point forward. And I think that was January of 2008. So that's how it started. <laughs> that's really cool. I think, you know, a lot of the misfits and rejects out there that I interview, you know, have arrived at the location in which they dwell in for, for many reasons. You know, Dale Dagger, episode four, he shipwrecked and he, he, ne- he didn't leave because he couldn't financially leave. Um, other people's like myself, like yourself, you know, stumbled upon a place that just every cell in our body kind of told us this was home. And I've talked about in past episodes where, you know, I grew up in Southern California, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area, and just never felt like it was home. I didn't connect with it. Um, did you have that same sort of sensation in Wisconsin growing up that just Wisconsin wasn't your home? Or can you t- describe like what your childhood was like and how you felt as a person growing up in, in that area? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I've never ever felt that Wisconsin was the place that I needed to be. Uh, of course, I was born there and raised there. I was born um, in Madison, Wisconsin, and then I grew up in a small town just north of Madison. And I lived in a pretty rural area. And so, for the first twelve years of my life, before I went to middle school, I was out at a real small, a really small country school, and surrounded by the same, you know, twenty friends that I had had since kindergarten, and. I never really knew any different. I just thought that was the extent of my world, right? <laughs> like this tiny little like bubble that I lived in. I couldn't even get to town easily because I, we just didn't have the transportation. So I lived this very uh, sequestered life. And and even when I got to middle school and, and discovered that actually there's kind of a bigger world out there <laughs> in, in terms of the city itself and new people, I just never felt like I really fit in. And I think that that the feeling of never fitting in and never, never ever assuming that I wanted to create a life there for the rest of my life probably was the driving force behind 
every decision I made after that, even if it, if I didn't realize it at the time, you know, because I, I just, I couldn't wait to leave. And it's not a, I don't mean to demean my hometown or anything because it's a lovely place. It's fine. And lots of people like to stay. It's just me personally. I didn't feel comfortable there and I didn't feel like it was the fit for me. And so I left as soon as I graduated high school and I moved to the bigger city in Wisconsin, which is Milwaukee. And I went, that's where I went to college. It's where I went to law school. And that's where I worked for, uh, until I was 30 years old. And, and I felt at least slightly more like I fit in there, but I hated the climate. I've just, I am not, I'm not, it's just, there was, I couldn't do it. I didn't feel like I could do anything about it because I had kids and I was raising kids and I was doing all this stuff um, because I kind of just followed the path that everyone expected, right? Of a small town person in a, in the Midwest, you, you know, find someone, you have kids, you work, you go to college, you work, you do whatever, you build a career. But I was just like, this isn't, this isn't really what I want. Um, and so, yeah, I think from an early age, even whether I recognized it or not, I always felt really displaced, I guess, is a good word for it. And, and I still feel that way. Even when I go back to Wisconsin now, it's, it's great to visit. I see old friends from high school. I see my mom who still lives there, who's lived there all her life and, and will live there all her life. You know, I, I, I see people that I've known all my life, but it's nice to see, but, but I leave and I think, and I don't miss it when I'm not there. So I know that that's not the place for me. So, yeah. And I think that's very relatable in the way that you just described, you know, being there for so long and, and just kind of adopting that sort of mentality and way of life of, you know, finding a husband and having children and raising them and, and then realizing, you know, even though it's been nagging at you your whole life, that just, just isn't for you and then going out and seeking something new. So can you describe to us, you know, what that transitional period was like and what that driving force was like for you to really say like, this isn't for me and, and I'm out of here, I'm going to start looking for that new spot or. Yeah. Sure. I, yeah. So I, I was, I was a lawyer at the time and a, a litigation attorney, you know, fulfilling my, everyone who knew me destiny that I was a great arguer. Right. So I should become a litigation attorney because I like to argue with everyone. Um, and, and so it was a bit more of a decision for me to say, I'm done with this and I'm going to go move to Seattle. Right. But what helped was my ex worked at one of the tech companies and it made sense for him to eventually go back and work at their home office. So, uh, when the point came where they said, look, you, we really want you in Seattle. Uh, I was, who was kind of just generally unhappy being a lawyer <laughs> because I found it just, I'm really, I don't like conflict. So being a litigation attorney might've been the worst choice I could have possibly made when I went to law school. Right. <laughs> I, I should have been a tax attorney. That probably would have been much nicer, but I picked something that would put conflict in my life every day. And it was not a very th pleasant thing. So by eight years into practicing law, I was like, you know what? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And so when he said, let's go, I said, you know what? Warmer weather, nicer climate, more things to do. There's mountains, there's the ocean. Um, it, it wasn't, I didn't know I had another move in me, but I thought this isn't a good enough change and it'll give me a new horizon that I'm happy to go. So that's how I ended up in Seattle. And I loved it there. I, I mean, it was, it was a great change from what I had and it kept me satisfied for, for a while. Interesting. What did you take your kids with you? You mentioned you had children. Did they, um, are they older now and moved out of the house by now? Yeah. Well, so, okay. So when we decided to move to Seattle, actually I was almost 40. So I actually lived in Milwaukee for 20 years, not 10. Maybe I'm trying to pretend it was only 10, but it was 20. <laughs> 20. So I turned 40 and, uh, and then we moved to Seattle by that time, because I, I thought it would be really interesting to start having kids when I was really young. So I'd be free earlier and have more of my life ahead of me than behind me when I was and no longer caring for children. Uh, my daughter was already graduated from high school. 
and out on her own. And my son was in just starting high school and he went with us and my daughter stayed uh, because she was pursuing some other interests in Wisconsin. So we moved with my son, who was a teenager at the time, and uh, and we re- relocated to Seattle. So, wow. So what? I mean, now that you now you're a long ways away from your children, do they come and visit you often? Um, yeah, they try. My my daughter is not a huge traveler. <laughs> she she's a pretty much a homebody. She still lives in Wisconsin, and I think that's her comfort zone. Um, and so she doesn't uh, she doesn't get out there and explore. But my son is is a uh, quite quite willing to try new things. So he comes down and sees me. He came down when I first moved here, and he learned to scuba dive. He he came down again, and we tried kite surfing. So. Um, yeah, one of them does and one of them doesn't. So I see my daughter when I can, when I get back to Wisconsin and, and my son, I go to visit and he comes here. So we see each other pretty regularly. That's cool. You know, you said something really interesting and profound, I think, um, in, in what you're saying earlier, which is, you know, being a litigation lawyer, you put more conflict in your life, um, which I think I've observed, you know, a lot of people subconsciously do um, for whatever reasons that drive people to do what they do. But you know, I feel like, you know, you talked about making a conscious decision to get yourself out of it when you did realize this was something that wasn't fulfilling you. Um, and now you're living more of a, a fulfilled life doing what you want, where you want. And I think that's a really profound statement right there that we all have a choice. You know, even though we do initially, I think, in the earlier years of our lives, as we start to develop and grow, make decisions based on what we were told was right, what we, th- we saw our parents do, and we kind of recreate that reality. And then it takes that moment of clarity where it's like, now is a moment for me, now is a moment for like me to step out and, and start pursuing the things that I want. And you know, bravo to you for, for doing that and getting out and, and finding a place in a really random place in the world that you connect with, because <laughs> Bonaire sounds very interesting and, and I've never heard of it. Can you describe more about your, your daily life in Bonaire and, I mean, I know you got there because of scuba diving and you spent a few years kind of going back and forth before you said, you know what, this is it for me. I'm going to make this my my home island. Can you talk about now that you're there and and what life is like? Sure. It's interesting because um, when I moved here or even when I started visiting here, I didn't have a ton of experience with other Caribbean islands. I had been to St. Lucia once and I had been to Cozumel once, which obviously is an island, but it's really more a Mexican island close to the mainland. Uh, so I didn't really know what to, exp- I didn't know that there were a lot of different kinds of Caribbean islands. I just assumed they're all the same, right? Like you're in the Caribbean, all these islands are the same, you know, there's rum punch, there's reggae bands, there's beaches and, you know, palm trees and it's, you know, not the U.S. Uh, but what I, what I found when I got to Bonaire, and, and actually I didn't realize it at the time, but since I've ho- I hooked up and connected with other bloggers from other Caribbean islands who I, who I work with closely on a lot of different projects and stuff is that Bonaire is really unique in the Caribbean in terms of what it has and what it lacks. So it's not a place like if you're familiar with kind of the typical Caribbean islands, right? Like the, the Bahamas or the British Virgin islands or even the U S Virgin islands, or, you know, some of the other places like St. Lucia or along the lesser Antilles, which are lush and mountainous with beautiful beaches and, 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 you know, beach bars and, and sailboats and things happening. It's like a, it's like a nonstop party. And what Bonaire is, is this kind of arid, dry desert style 
island way down in the southern Caribbean that doesn't have any beaches, really. I mean, it has one or two, but we don't have white sand beaches. We don't have swaying palm trees and, and, and hammocks strung between them and a ton of beach bars where every weekend is like a boating party from one place to the next, like you get in some of the other places. What we do have is an amazing underwater marine park, which is perfect for scuba diving, which is why so many divers revere Bonaire as a destination, right? And it's well protected by a, a national organization that sole job is to make sure it stays nice. Uh, we also have incredible wind, which isn't the norm, I think, in most other Caribbean spots, uh, because I have enough kite surfing friends that live in other places, and they're always telling me that we have so much better, you know, more consistent wind. Uh, so we have this more like outdoor natural-based lifestyle here, which if you're into that, it's perfect. But if you're not, it's a hard place to live. I was always into it. I moved here already knowing how to scuba dive, and I wanted to learn really, really, really badly how to kite surf. I had seen it when I was here on vacation, and it just looked like a cool, beachy lifestyle, right? Like shaggy-haired dudes and, and girls just like having a great time hanging out on the beach, and Evelyn friendly, and Evelyn's doing this really fun sport. And I really wanted to inject that into my life. Uh, and um, we talked a little bit before this before we, this call about kind of surfing. And obviously, there's no proper surfing here in terms of waves and kind of the typical SoCal beach surfing community vibe, right? But well, we don't have that, but we do have it with kite surfing. And so it's a really small kite surfing community, but it's a really active one. So I think when you're cons- when you con- when I came to Bonaire, I knew it wasn't going to be. I knew it wasn't going to be the tradition. Well, I didn't know at the time, but I know now. It's not the traditional Caribbean experience like that tourists are expecting. It's uh, rugged. It's not fancy. It's not anything like that. You know, it's it's you're happiest here if you're in the water or on the water. You know, messy hair, no makeup. You know, scruffy clothes, flip flops, or barefoot driving a beat up truck. And and that's what I discovered when I got here. And that's what I loved about it because it was the antithesis of this life I had created for myself in Seattle, which by all outward accounts was this amazing, you know, enviable lifestyle, right? A huge house in the suburbs. I drove a nice car. We took nice vacations. We entertained, you know, I always had expensive clothes and designer handbags. And, you know, it was the perfect lifestyle from the outside, uh, but I was miserable. <laughs> and, and, and then I moved to Bonaire and I, I traded, I gave it all up. And people were like, you're insane. You're living in this like third world country and you're driving. I had a Suzuki Samurai with holes in the floor. And when my son first saw it, the first time he came to visit, he was 21 and he was like, mom, I, I, I don't know, man, is it safe to get in this thing? <laughs> I'm thinking, well, okay, it's not my Volvo, okay, but it's pretty safe and don't worry about it. There's, you know, there's no stoplights, the speed limit, you know, there's no cars on the road. You'll be fine. And he really got into it, but he was pretty surprised. And that really pointed out to me, I guess, the, the, the difference in, in the lifestyle I, was, I wanted to embrace from what I had. And I think that that's, I think what I valued most about living in th- on this particular island is it was so different and so much simpler that that I think is what was fulfilling that a gaping hole in my soul that I didn't have when I was living kind of the life that everyone thought I should be living in Seattle. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that, you know, giving it up and walking away from all that, because that's a very scary proposition, I think, for anybody. Change is hard. And I mean, to get up 
uproot everything and move. I mean, what was your game plan? Did you have like tons of savings built up that you could float yourself for a period of time until you figured it out once you got there? Like, how are you sustaining yourself and how did you sustain yourself when you finally made that decision to leave? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'd like to say that I'm a super amazing planner and that I had like my whole future planned out before I decided to leave Seattle. But anyone who knows me would laugh at that. (laughs) And the truth is, I didn't have a game plan at all. I was in a really tough relationship that was really spiraling downhill really fast. Uh, No one really saw it from the outside because we had a pretty good ability to make everyone think we were this like kind of perfect couple. Although after, after I left and talked to some of my old friends, they all assured me no one really thought that. So I guess I was the only one that thought we were doing a really good job of it. Um, but it got to a point in my life where getting out and, and, and trying to figure out how to save myself and, and my mental health and, and my, and my happiness in the future was worth more than knowing that I had X number of dollars in my bank account to rely on if things went south really fast. So I didn't leave because it was the opportune time financially or stability wise in my life because it wasn't. I had some money. Obviously, I didn't come here with $30 in the bank. But in terms of long term savings and what I was going to do if I couldn't figure things out uh, in the next six months or a year, it wasn't quite as comfortable as I would have liked it to be. Um, but I, but I didn't mind because I was so desperate to like save myself from what I figured was going to be a pretty dismal existence or maybe end of my existence when I lived in Seattle. Um, uh, it was worth the uncertainty of what my future was going to be like. And and you know the thing I learned the most is even without a huge game plan or a, a security net or whatever, life always has a way of working out. And if you're resourceful and you're committed to your path and you have faith in the universe and you are a decent human being, I think that the universe puts out there uh, the right opportunities at the right time that get you to a place you maybe never envisioned, but keeps you going and gives you some fulfillment in ways you never expected without sounding too, without sounding too kooky about it. But I'm just saying, you know, things always, it's trite, but things always work out the way they're supposed to. No, well said. I think, I mean, that's so profound in in the way you stated that. And I totally agree. I think the one thing, the only thing that we generally have control over is, is putting that, that first foot in front of the other, that front foot in front of the other, and just making that first step. You know, if you sit on your couch, hoping that the lottery is going to knock on your door and say that you just won $250 million, like that's silly. But if you do want to go out there and, and mix it up and, and shape your life in the way you want. You got to put that first foot in front of the other. And like you said, life does provide. So bravo to you. I mean, that's incredible. So did you, I mean, you must've had some sort of idea of, okay, I have this skill set. I know you're a blogger, so you, you're obviously good at writing or thought you were good at writing. Um, <laughs> um, this is what I'm going to go do and, and somehow make money at it. Well, not at first, at first. Okay. So back in the day when I moved to Bonaire, uh, Americans, were treated uh, just like every other person other than Dutch people in terms of wanting to move here. So this is a Dutch country. You have to understand that. It's a Dutch, it's a part, it's a special municipality of the Netherlands. So uh, Dutch immigrants have a little more lenient path to immigrate to Bonaire. At the time I moved here in 2011, um, Americans didn't have that same, same kind of reciprocal luxury, I guess. So the only way I could stay is if I could prove that I had enough savings in the bank or that I had a job contract um, 
so that I could sustain myself. So I, was, I didn't have enough money in the bank to fulfill that, uh, what, what isn't all that big of a hurdle, but I didn't have it. I mean, I had some money, but not that much. So I, uh, I, I realized I had to get a job. And so I thought, well, what can I do? I don't speak Dutch. I still don't speak Dutch very well. I speak a little bit, but <laughs> certainly nothing that would entitle me to a, a, a normal job here in the, in the government. Um, but I had to do something because I needed to, I need, the only way I could stay is if I found someone who would offer me a job and then I'd have a job contract. Um, because it, like, you know, not like in the U.S. where everyone works at will, here everything is contract-based. So to get a job, you get a contract and then there's rights and responsibilities with that. So I thought, well, one thing I can do is I can teach scuba, <laughs> which, which if you knew my start to learning how to scuba dive, I was the person in class that was hyperventilating on the drive to the lesson because I was so scared of going underwater. And I had given up 10 years earlier in a resort course. Uh, once they asked me to take my mask off in the swimming pool, I was like, I'm good. I'm done. No, thanks. And I dropped all my gear and went to the bar. <laughs> and I said to my ex, I said, I'm done. I'm never learning to scuba dive again. So fast forward to now I'm on this island and I need a way to be able to stay on the island. And the only way I can figure out to do that is to become a scuba instructor. <laughs> so uh, that's what I did. I, I started as a dive master. I got my dive master certificate and then I, got, I took the instructor course with Patty and I became a dive instructor and I got a job contract and I went to immigration and proudly su submitted all my paperwork and they let me stay. And so I did that for three years. And uh, or four years, two years actively teaching, and then two years as a manager of one of the dive shops at, at one of the more American-centric resorts. Go figure, right? Because most people that come here to work are from Europe and the Netherlands in particular. So the idea that this kind of middle-aged American woman who had management experience kind of fell into their lap was a, obviously a no-brainer that they'd put me at the American resort. So, and it was great fun. I had a lot of fun. So for four years I was working in the dive industry uh, and that was great fun. I didn't make any money. I mean, there's a, there's a reason dive instructors are skinny, right? <laughs> Cause we don't have any money for food and the money we do have, we spend for beer. So, but it was, you know, it was, and it was so different from being a lawyer, right? Like I, I was like, wow, this is like a fun job. Like people are having a good time interacting with people and it's no stress and it's no conflict. And I thought, man, I'm so, I'm glad I did this, even though you know, there were months where I didn't have, I brought my dog with me, by the way, which also made things up slightly more complicated for myself. But I had a corgi who was my dog and my ex got kind of nasty about it and was like, if it had been his dog too for 10 years. And then he was like, if you don't take this dog with you right now, I'm going to give it away. And I'm like, what? So, I, but it was fine. So I brought my dog with me. So I had this dog with me. So I was not only this crazy American woman who showed up on the island of all Dutch people. Um, I also was the crazy American woman who had a corgi of all dogs on an island where most dogs are just island pot cake kind of mutt dogs. So I'm sure I was quite an interesting uh, character for a lot of people here, but you know, it paid the bills and I got to where I am. And then I started writing because I realized I didn't physically, it's hard to be a dive, work in the dive industry, right? Because tanks are heavy and, you know, you start feel, feeling your age a little bit more. And uh, so I, that's, I transitioned to writing for clients. I did a lot of freelance writing work and I started my blog originally just as a way to make sure my family and friends knew I wasn't, you know, dead or had disappeared somewhere in the Caribbean because I'm not very good at like keeping up with email or calling. So I did a blog originally just to post my kind of adventures when I first moved here. And then it's evolved into what it is now. So that's kind of, that's how I've funded myself along the way. 
it helps it helps if you meet someone um when you're because i got divorced along the way as well so when i left seattle just uh, i didn't actually my ex and i finally realized it wasn't really going to work uh, there were some pretty significant issues that neither of us felt like we could overcome so when i moved uh, part of me leaving was also uh, getting a divorce which was fairly painful but also kind of uh, a relief i think for both of us um so whilst i was down here as a a single crazy American woman with a toting a corgi everywhere she went. <laughs> it helps if you're poor and you don't have any money because you're a dive instructor if you meet someone who's a chef and cooks you dinner every night. So that was kind of a saving grace, I suppose, which is the funniest side of the story. I mean, thank you for sharing that because, you know, I think a lot of facing your fears came out of that description, you know, where you did have to, like, obviously sustain yourself and you, you chose an industry which you were terrified of, which is huge. Um, and then obviously having to face that fear of leaving somebody that you've built a life with for so long and then walking away from that into a, a completely unknown, a new environment where you have to now figure out not only um, who you are, a new identity, but uh, a new culture and all the things that come along with that as an expat. Um, you know, the, the things that you're doing there what which is the blog obviously and you were doing the dive thing like what kind of like standard of living are you encountering every day like it's i think you said a second world country so what does that mean like are you paying a dollar for a beer like what's your standard of living like okay so well when, when i describe it as a second i always when i first got here in 2008 and straight from from you know the u.s and all the creature comforts and amenities that we have at our disposal that you kind of take for granted when i got here in 2008 it was really not how it is today. So second world chic was a pretty good description to me of how it was. You know, there were dirt roads and there were like a lot of people driving junky cars and there were roosters running across the street and, you know, the kind of typical stuff you'd expect in a pretty rural uh, Caribbean island, right? So that's how it was for a couple of years. But in 2010, uh, on October 10th of 2010, uh, this island went from an independent municipal an independent country to a special municipality of Netherlands. And ever since that time, Holland has been infusing the island with resources and, and to improve the infrastructure. So today it's not the same Bonaire that I, I, I fell in love with in 2008. It's, you know, today we have nice homes and gourmet restaurants, and it's really pretty much a foodies kind of uh, secret foodies destination. And there's a lot more activities and cruise ships have started coming here. And there are really, you know, fancy, not super fancy, but there's nicer hotels and things than it was in 2008. So today on a day to day basis, you know, we have a nice Dutch grocery store with all the things you know, whereas when I moved here in 2008, one time I wanted to make spaghetti and I wasn't a particularly creative cook on my own. I was kind of used to going to like, you know, the local Whole Foods and buying whatever I needed and putting together what I assumed were really creative meals, but required little creativity on my part because everything was right there, you know. And when I moved here and I, the first time I wanted to make spaghetti for some reason, I don't know if I was entertaining or I just was hungry. I don't know. And I couldn't find a jar of spaghetti sauce anywhere on the island. Like I had to go to like six stores and there were no, no jars of spaghetti sauce. So I was <laughs> stymied. I'm like 43 years old and I can't figure out how to make spaghetti sauce if I don't have a jar of ragu at my disposal, which I've happily have, you know, gotten past that. And now I'm quite creative because we couldn't get anything at the time. And you'd have to go to like eight places. And if you didn't get it, you'd have to figure out what to do. So I learned really quickly how to make spaghetti sauce from scratch. And, uh, and um, but now today I can get anything I want. And Amazon, since 
since uh, 2008, I'm happy to report. Amazon also delivers here through a, a, a freight forwarding company in Miami. So I have to wait two extra weeks, but I can get whatever I want from the States, almost virtually. So today it's not second world chic at all. It's, it's pretty modern by Caribbean standards. So on a day-to-day basis, I don't struggle too much. I mean, I can't get Casamigos tequila if I wanted it. I have to kind of settle for whatever I can find at the local Chinese markets. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not having quite the adventures I was having, say, um, eight years ago or seven years ago. So, I mean, are you, do you own your own home? Are you paying rent right now? Uh, so no, we're renting a house. So uh, I got remarried after I moved to Bonaire. A couple of years after I moved to Bonaire, I met I met I met a guy on the beach when I was learning to kite surf, and um, we got re- we got married, and then we moved to the UK for a couple of years, um, and then we came back to Bonaire in 2016, and we rented a house. Um, I don't want to buy a house here because it doesn't financially make sense from an investment standpoint. Housing is quite expensive for an for this island, and mortgages are very difficult to obtain and also require significant investments of of a down payment. So it's not like in the U.S. And also, I love it here. I like it here, but I, neither my husband or I think this is the last stop. And I find ownership of real estate to be kind of this encumbrance that kind of ties you to a place more than I want to be tied. So we rent a house. It's a nice house. It's big. It's got a pool and a huge garden for our dogs. And we're quite happy with it. Uh, But a lot of people, I think you'll find rent here because they either have financial obstacles or they don't want to tie themselves down to kind of trying to get rid of real estate when they're ready to move on. Do you mind me asking like how much you pay just to give the audience some perspective on the cost of living? Yeah, no, the cost of living is uh, quite, it's not expensive in a rent perspective, especially if you're listening from, say, a country like the U.S. or or the U.K. So I lived on the island of Guernsey before I moved here, so everything seems cheap here, but that was like an insanely expensive place to live. Um, But we pay $1,700 a month in rent, and that includes our pool guy. Um, And then our, but but what really kills us and what, what kills most people or what most people find shocking about living on this island, and I think most Caribbean islands and talking to my friends, at least from some of the, you know, uh, the BVI and, and whatnot, is, is the utility costs. So our electric is quite expensive. Um, so, uh, you know, we pay anywhere between three and $500 a month for electricity and anywhere between 75 and $150 a month for our water bill. But that's a little higher because we have a swimming pool, which was non-negotiable for me when we moved back. I'm like, I live in the Caribbean. I have to have a swimming pool. I am such a swimming pool addict that when I lived in Wisconsin, which has all of like four months of amazing warm pool weather, I insisted on putting a swim, an in-ground swimming pool at our house. <laughs> But I am like, so a pool is like the thing. I'm like, look, if I'm going to live in a country where, you know, in a place where I can't get, you know, there's no Uber, there's no Lyft, there's, you know, I'm making some big sacrifices here. And I'm saying that sarcastically. I have to have a swimming pool. Plus I work at home. So I'm home. I'm a right. I write at home. I have my an office and everything. Um, I like the idea that I don't have to go anywhere to like have a relaxing experience. So that's really important to me. So. Yeah. Yeah. A few side notes I kind of want to just t- touch upon because Nicaraguan electricity is astronomical as well. I mean, we're paying like four or five hundred dollars a month as well, but it's a monopoly. It's a full. We call it um, Union Mafiosa. It's Union Finosa, <laughs> which is the, the the only power company in the whole country. Um, oh. But just gouge us. So why are you paying such high electricity bills? It's the same. I mean, we have one company. I mean, it's not like you get to choose and they can charge whatever they want. I don't, um, I don't follow it too much because my attitude is, look, no one's forcing me to live here. Uh, 
so I, I have to accept it or move on. Uh, there are a lot of people that spend, spend a lot of their energy and time complaining and bitching about the cost of electricity, what the, what, what the power company and the government are doing in, in together to make this like so unfair. And I just think, you know, life is short and you, no one's forcing you to live here because all the people doing the bitching are all the expats, right? And, 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 and it's like, I try not to get involved because I'm like, you know, I choose to live here and that's just a cost of living in, in paradise, right? And no one feels particularly sorry for me if I'm going to whinge and whine about how, how much I pay for utilities, right? Because they're going to be like, well, bitch, move back to the U.S. where, you know, electricity is $90 a month and then you can just shut up. So I just I accept it because it is what it is. And in the islands, you have to kind of have that attitude or you're not going to last very long. And I think that probably goes for any place that isn't quite as developed as the country or countries that you have experienced that are super modern and advanced. Yeah, I mean, I I love your island girl quotes. They are just so cool. I want to touch <laughs> upon those. I want to touch upon those in one second. I have one more question before we get to those because the contrast of you know the way it was when you first arrived in two thousand eight or before, and you fell in love with it. Obviously, it was what you connected with to where it is now. How was that transition for you? Because I know for myself, you know, landing in Nicaragua two thousand five, and then now. Like that transitional period over the last 13 years, there's been some pretty, pretty rough, rocky roads for me just having to accept that, like, this is the new life and place I'm going to live in. Like tons of people, crowded lineups for surf. Like it's a tourist destination that I helped build, even though I wanted to try to keep it a secret. So like, how was that for you? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, my God. So I moved here to learn to kite surf. And I did learn to kite surf. And I kite surfed a lot when I first moved here, like every weekend. It helped that the guy I met and ended up marrying was also as equally as passionate about it as I was. But it's funny that you say that. Uh, yeah. So we I, and we were there all the time. And, and I have friends that own a kite school and I, I want, really want to help them build their kite school. Right. But at the same time, I get really pissed off, when, irrationally, of course, when I go to the beach and there's all these tourists kiting. I'm like, go away. I want my beach back to myself. I want it to be like it used to be. And, and I think that's the rub, right? I mean, you move somewhere and you love it because it's isolated and whatever. Uh, and you want it to stay like that forever. But on the other hand, I also love the conveniences that come along with the fact that we're now a cruise ship destination and there's more infrastructure amenities and, and things are, I can get any kind of kite gear I want now and I can buy it locally and it, it's there in a couple days versus the old days when if I wanted something, I kind of had to take whatever they were selling and whatever. Uh, so it's like a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like you want your country to evolve but you kind of want it to stay the same way it was when you first discovered it. But I'm smart enough to know that the people that arrived two decades or three decades or even a decade before I got here also probably thought the same thing. And when I showed up, they were like, oh, my God, go away. I don't need any more new people coming to this island and changing it or telling us how we should be doing things better. Um, and, and that's just a, a thing you, I have, think that happens on every uh, every place like you for Nicaragua and me for here and people anywhere, really, where it's ripe for development and ripe for, for, you know, evolving into a more populous first world kind of destination. And it's tough. It's tough to accept that, although you have to, because at the end of the day, I'm just a guest here and I'm, I, I'm part of the problem of making it more populated, right? <laughs> totally. And I think that's, you know, your perspective is how, how you lasted, because as I'm sure you see, like I do in Nicaragua, people come and go. People come with these expectations, and then they leave with their tail between their legs because they, their expectations weren't met. And um, 
you know, I think with that perspective of like, it is what it is, you know, and, and I can choose to leave if I want. So just roll with the punches is the only way that you can really survive. I mean, unless you, 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 you have a raging alcoholic fucking mentality that is going to eat you up because these places tend to do that to people like with those types of personalities, you know? It does. I mean, I, I, I unfortunately know, you know, at least a handful of people that y- you either accept it and roll with it or you succumb to whatever vice it is that your your weak weakness is, right? And for a lot of people on an island, it's alcohol because it's the lifestyle, right? I mean, you don't show up at the beach unless you have a cooler full of beers or wine or both or, you know, rum or whatever. And it's perfectly acceptable. I mean, in the States, you don't exactly open a beer and get in the car and drive someplace, right? But here, that's, my that's number like... one quote, by the way, that I was about to like cite. I love that quote. I could relate to it so well. And so what is it? Yeah. You're, you know you're an island girl if, and it's a dot, dot, dot. This is on your website. And it says, yeah. if you're home and you crack a beer as you're getting ready to go to the grocery store with your family and you get in the car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like it's a roadies, right? So here a roadie is kind of like, you need to stay hydrated. That's the joke, right? It's important to stay hydrated in the Caribbean. It's very hot here. Uh, so, you know, it's like when you, when you leave the beach or when you leave a destination or you leave a house party, people are always like beer for the road. And you're like, yeah, of course. I mean, duh. And, and when you go home to like Seattle or Wisconsin or someplace and you know, you're, you're mixed, you're like, should we have a, should we grab a drink for the car? And your friends and family are like, are you like a raging alcoholic or what is your problem? Duh. No, of course we're not going to drink and drink and drive. And you just have to kind of remind yourself that your lifestyle is quite different than it used to be when you lived in the States. But, but, but on the same, in the same vein, right, the generally accepted approach to drinking in the islands can, can also work against you if you happen to have a proclivity to turn to that to deal with the normal stress that comes from living here, right? And, and it's unfortunate because some people leave, some people figure out this is not good for me or I hate it or I can't deal with all these obstacles and other people don't want to make that decision and then they just self-medicate and it usually doesn't end very well for them. And, and that's, it's a bleak, unfortunate part of living in the islands, but it's something people need to recognize and understand because it will come a point when you'll run, you'll know someone who you'll get a message the next day, especially on a small island. The coconut telegraph is the prime way to get information around. You'll get a WhatsApp message or you'll get a text message or a Facebook message from somebody saying, did you hear? And then, you know, you, you just feel terrible and you think, man, if only. I had known or if only whatever. And that's also as real a part of living in the Caribbean as, as all of the beach barbecues and the cool sunsets and the, and the cocktails and the boat parties, you know, can you describe what that meant though? Like, are you getting a call saying so-and-so uh, crashed your car and killed accidentally died or like they shot themselves or like, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if empirically there's any study, but I think that the suicide rate on, on, Caribbean islands might be higher than in other places. I don't know if that's true or if it's just that we have such a small insulated population that when it happens, it seems like it's happening more often than you hear about it anywhere else. I mean, certainly I've known people that have committed suicide in, in the U.S., especially when I lived in Seattle. I mean, I think the climate does not do anyone any favors there. Um, but here you hear about it and, and you think, how is that possible? You know, ostensibly we're living in paradise. We're living in this place that's beautiful and perfect. Uh, but it's actually, I always tell people the, the secret of uh, that you don't know about the Caribbean is it's really a harsh place to live. 
not to be too much of a downer about it, but it's really a harsh place to live. I mean, the beautiful sunshine and stuff, it, it, it destroys everything. And it's hard to live here. It's hard to make a living. It's hard to save money. It's hard to, it, you can come to the joke is you can move here. If you want to be a millionaire, when you move to Bonaire, you should move here with a billion dollars because eventually you'll just be a millionaire. And and I think that that's a, kind of a, a good way to look at it. This island in particular, and it's the only one I can speak to because it's the only one I've lived on, but you know, it can be a very harsh place to live. And if you're not equipped in one way or another to deal with kind of the bumps in the road that come along with living here, if you're, then I think uh, your options become more limited. And if you feel like you don't have any options, unfortunately, you know, too many people turn to kind of drastic permanent solutions to their problems. And and I think in a small community where, I mean, let's face it with 20,000 total people on an island, you generally tend to know most of the other expats that live here or the, or your friends and family or your circle of friends from whatever you, you either know the person or you know someone who knows them or you know their girlfriend or you know their dad or whatever and it's it brings home a little bit more i think i mean that's so relatable to nicaragua as well and and other you know places like it um you know that my brother-in-law calls it the tropical depression he grew up on the big island of hawaii and it's so weird you're right just like for some reason like you get there with that enthusiasm and then you either get trapped in vices or it didn't meet your expectations or whatever the case may be and if you do choose to stay you become that bitter, depressed oh. expat. <laughs> oh my gosh, don't get me started. I'm like, just leave the island already, okay? There's nothing worse than a bitter person in paradise because you don't have to live here. And if you do have to live here because you, I don't know, don't have the money to get a plane ticket to go home, tell us. We will help you because there's <laughs> there's nothing worse than, than seeing people miserable here. And 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 the thing is, people hide it, right? They don't want anyone to know that they live in paradise, in quotes, and they're miserable. But it's true. It happens a lot. I mean, even I go through phases, not where I'm miserable, but where I'm like, what am I doing here? Why, you know, why am I here? That life is so hard here sometimes in terms of whatever, expense, weather, climate, friends leaving. That's a big one, right? Like you make good friends and, and they don't tend to stay because people are here for a finite period of time. And all these things add up. And if you don't, if, if you, my theory is if you don't, if you don't leave at the prime time to go and you decide to stick it out and then you become miserable, that's just, that's it. That's, that's what you're going to do the rest of your life. You're just going to become that bitter old person living on a Caribbean Island that everyone's like, Oh yeah, her or, Oh yeah, him, mm, you know, and they're all going to avoid you. And you're just going to, I don't know. That's how your days are going to end. And that doesn't seem like the idea of living in the tropics, right? <laughs> or anywhere no, like doesn't. anywhere that's deemed paradise, right? So go home. You need to go before you get bitter. That's that's my one piece of advice, I suppose. I agree. And I, I mean, I totally support that. However, I will say that there is a poetic beauty about that person that sits at that bar every day who's just pissed off. And you, you know, <laughs> and you're cool with them. They're cool with you, but they fucking hate everybody else. And you're like... <laughs> I mean, that's fuel for your, you know, your, your craft, your, your blog, you know, that it's true. Well, I've blogged about a lot of people on the Island discreetly, I hope, I mean, but yeah. I, and, and, you know, it's in daily conversation. It becomes kind of a joke. It's like, they're cool. They're cool to, to hang out with if they, if you, if they like you, right. If, if you're like one of the people that they relate to and, but, but you go home at the end of the day and I always say to my husband, I'm like, 
oh man, just make sure we're gone off this island before I turn into so-and-so. And he always says, you're not going to turn into so-and-so because you have a pretty good approach to like living here and it's funny and you think, and you're finding the humor and things for the moment. But I, I promise if I start seeing signs, we'll, we'll be booking tickets, one-way tickets off the island. So Nice. So let's talk about Island Girl. I mean, island, yeah. The Adventures of Island Girl is your blog. And it is. you have a lot of cool quotes. You have a lot of cool content. Can you give the audience a little bit of what it's about, why you're doing it, what drives you to continue to create all the content you do create for it? Sure. I mean, it, so it started as just my personal. So it started back in like 2011 when I first moved here. And that was kind of before blogs were like the mainstream thing for everyone to do. At least I think uh, it's hard to remember back that far. I'm getting older, you know, memory goes. But um, I really started it just to kind of chronicle the really absurd things that I would observe here. Because when you first get here, things are far more absurd than they are eight years later. So now I see things that probably I would have thought were super absurd when I moved here. And now I just think, yeah, that's pretty normal. So it, it, it's good to have that. That fresh perspective of first arriving on a plate in a place where things are so bizarrely different than where you came from. But mostly it was to keep my family and friends informed of what I was doing. And then I kind of took a hiatus for a while. It was always out there, but I never really did anything with it. And then when I quit my job at the dive shop and I wanted an outlet for writing more creatively, I returned to it and it sort of evolved since then. And with a lot of help and guidance from uh, some fellow Caribbean bloggers who I've uh, made, I've befriended over the years in a virtual way because they're all at different, on different islands around the Caribbean, I've really had my focus kind of honed in on what I want to do with the adventures of Island Girl. And today, the point of it is, I mean, still to talk about the absurd things that happen, like the fact that I went over on my data plan three days before I was leaving for Miami and then my phone got shut off, even though I have a postpaid plan, which I've paid for every month on time. So, which resulted in me going to the going to the cell phone company for three hours one afternoon and basically having them say, "Yeah, you went over on your data." I'm like, "No shit, that's why I'm here. Let's talk about solutions." And it's, that stuff still makes me laugh, right? I mean, uh, so I still write about kind of the absurd things, but what I'd also like to do, I think, and I'm trying to do more of, is to write some more inspirational pieces that explain kind of how I got here and the hurdles I faced to encourage other people who might be on the fence about making a big decision in their life that would uproot things, whether it's getting a divorce or going back to school or changing jobs or moving to a Caribbean island. I mean, there are people that want to do what I did, and I want to try and help them kind of see the pros and cons of what I've done because everything hasn't been perfect. I mean, <laughs> there are some days when I think, man, is this the right thing I should have done? And I don't think anyone wants to hear that because I just want to think that I moved to a Caribbean island and everything is, you know, coming up roses every day and it's the best thing since sliced bread. And it's not that. And so I'm trying to balance my blog and make it more of an interactive um, platform for people who are considering big life changes to talk to someone who has been there and done that, so to speak, and share kind of some of the trials and tribulations of what giving everything up and embracing something completely unknown uh, can do for you in your life. I mean, certainly it can make you a much happier person and a more grounded person, but it also comes with some, you know, some, some, some heavy price tags along the way. And so that's kind of where we are now. And, and if I can make people laugh while I do it, which is why I, I have done some of those kind of Island girl truths, because <laughs> let's face it, living in a country that's not as developed as the U S or say any European, you know, the UK or the Netherlands or whatever, it, it, there's humor to be found there. And if you can't laugh in the midst of your despair over something, then it's probably not going to be a very good day for you. 
That's so cool, and we love you for doing it. I think it's a great bit of content and information that people can really benefit from. Are you, are you, have you monetized it? Is this a viable source of income? Well, no. Okay, so I just had this discussion. I was in Miami over the weekend with some blogger friends, and we were talking about kind of the natural flow for most blogs is to monetize. And I'm really anti-monetizing this particular blog. <laughs> And, and that, I think that seems counterintuitive to people because I, I really treat this like a full-time job. I really I spend a lot of time writing. I write all my own content. I I, I do all the like background uh, WordPress kind of stuff. So all the tech stuff I sort out myself. I don't outsource it to anyone, and I pay all my overhead just out of my own pocket. I have a writing business that I do, and I do social media for clients. Um, outside of the adventures of Island Girl, but the adventures of Island Girl itself, I'm pretty set on not trying to monetize it because I don't want people to feel like when they come to the website, I'm trying to sell them something or they see a bunch of ads. So it puts me in a weird position because this is all just a labor of love at this point, and I, I want it to stay that way for as long as possible. <laughs> so it makes my life a little more challenging in terms of the, uh, keeping the website going, but. I really want it to be a place where people can come and reach out to me privately and talk about kind of their fears or their questions about, you know, what changes in life really entail and, and, or, you know, what living on Bonaire is like, or what living in the Caribbean is like. And, um, you know, and that's what I want it to continue to be. And I want it to feel like a, an unfettered environment for people to reach out and be part of without feeling like, you know, I'm pressuring them or even suggesting that they buy something or whatever. So I know that's kind of a narrow view and it's not really popular with bloggers in the world, but it's at the, at this point in time, it's, it's how I feel about it. And so I'm going to keep following how I feel about it until something natural comes along. No, that good makes for you. Sense. Yeah. Follow that intuition. I think that's the best for sure. I think, you know, I can relate because I started with that same mentality. You know, I just wanted to give a lot of rad content, a lot of rad information for my surfing, um, uh, surf website that I have and not make people feel like I was shoving down, you know, sh shoving things down their throat, like ads and all this stuff. But with time, I've come to the conclusion that that's not viable and I do want to make it a viable business. And so I have changed my perspective, but, um, fair enough to you and hats off to you for continuing that, you know, passion and love for just creating content for free, you know, good for well, you. Well, I will say, I mean, ultimately my end, my end goal and dream in life is to write a book. I don't know if it'll be an, uh, a memoir. I don't know if it'll be a, I would love to be like the female David Sedaris. <laughs> if the universe is kind to me, that would be like my ultimate end goal. And maybe this is a platform to share that kind of final product with people. Um, but I really want to build a community first and see what, where it goes from there. So you know, we'll keep doing, I'm going to keep doing it for as long. I don't have any foreseeable plans to change or, or, or stop doing something, but and maybe I'll help come up with cool stickers or something or can koozies or something that just goes with my brand. Because what I do get a lot of people reaching out to me is to just tell me how much they love the idea. And that the, the little girl, the Island girl logo with the martini or with the tropical drink glass is, you know, just something they can really feel they, they identify with. Um, but you know, we'll see. I mean, it's not like I'm adverse to making money from the blog but at this point i can't figure out a way that would make me feel comfortable to do it so right. we'll see but so so just so the audience is clear you do make your money off of writing professionally for clients is that correct 
Yeah, so I have I, I I've been I have been doing writing since 2013. I think when I quit working in the dive industry, I started as a freelance writer. So I do lots of different things. Um, I started doing copywriting um, and uh, blogs, ghost blogging, and uh, doing other things for clients, mostly in the U.S. Some some here on the island. Uh, over time, that segued into also website copy things like that. And but lately, I've found that I'm much more interested in doing social media. Um, management for clients. So I manage their Instagram accounts and their Facebook pages. I curate content and do that kind of stuff. And and that's really much more fun for me than writing because then I can focus my writing on my own stuff, which I'd like to, you know, write this book or a series of essays. And I find when I'm writing a lot for other clients, I, it drains my creativity for writing my own stuff. So now I'm doing more social media um, management and content curation for that. And it's been kind of, it's been really fun to expand my skill set into that area and I'm enjoying it. So that's kind of what I'm doing to pay the bills at the moment. (laughs) Mm, That's cool. That's good for you. I mean, that's so cool that you, you took that leap of faith. You went and followed your dream and landed and, and have made, you know, lifestyle for yourself. You designed it in the way you want. Can you maybe speak directly to the women in the audience right now? Um, and give them some inspiration, some hope, some guidance if they find themselves, say, in a relationship they're unhappy in, in a life situation they're not happy with, um, and they might want to like venture out, take that first step, and, and create or design a life that you've created. Can you kind of inspire us with something? <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll just say what I tell people generally is – it's scary as shit to change, to change your life. It was really scary for me to walk away from financial security, from uh, you know familial expectations, from the comfort that I had uh, when I was in Seattle. I mean, let's I must be re- really clear about that. I didn't really think too much about how bills were going to get paid or how groceries are going to be put on the table or whether I was going to get the newest iPhone when it was released. I mean, that stuff just happened naturally in my life. That's the life I had curated for myself, right? Uh, But the problem was it made me pretty miserable. And I think for every person, it's, it's different in terms of when you reach the point where you look at all that and you say, yeah, okay, this is pretty easy. And, and I, I certainly, it feels it's comfortable to stay, but if I stay, I am fucking miserable. And I'm sorry for swearing. I mean, that's a pretty harsh word, but I spent a lot of time sitting on my couch in front of the fireplace in Seattle by myself, crying over a bottle of red wine, thinking, why am I not happy? Why can't I just this be enough? And it got to the point where I thought if I don't leave and I don't do something different to hell with what's going to happen, I can't worry about what might happen down the road because it might not happen either. I need to get out of this. I need to change. And eventually I think everyone gets to a point, at least I hope they get to that point where they realize that the material things that make them comfortable and define their lives are not really all that important in the end of the, at the end of the day, and they will figure out a way to make things work if they choose to pursue a path that is making their soul feel happy. And I, I, I mean, it, maybe it won't work, but I think it does. I, I, I only have myself to, to, to base this assumption on, but I was really scared when I left Seattle on that first flight to come to Bonaire when I moved here. I left behind a son who had just graduated from high school and was getting ready to, you know, embark on his future. I left behind my dog for the for the moment. I left behind my house and everything that was comfortable about it. I left behind all my friends who all disappeared after I left because apparently friends 
aren't really your friends and they can't accept change too well. So only a few of them stuck around. I left the financial security and, but I knew that it was the right thing to do. It just felt right to me. And I finally just got to a point where I said, I cannot let fear dictate my life. I cannot let fear of what might happen make me stay in a situation that's killing my soul every single day. And I felt so liberated when I made that decision, even though I didn't have any idea how things were going to work out for me down the road. I mean, I had some savings, but that wasn't going to last forever or even very long. And I just thought, you know what? I feel so at peace with this decision. And I feel so at peace when I'm on Bonaire that I just feel like everything will work out. And I'm a resourceful person and I am going to just take charge of things. And I'm going to just roll with it and accept that I might be doing things I never expected, but it's the right thing to do. And it hasn't been a mistake. It hasn't been a terrible thing. I've always rebounded. I've always figured out something. Maybe maybe I was eating Melba toast with mustard on it for dinner because I had no money because I, I, I was like two weeks before I got paid. But you know what? I got really thin and I was really buff. <laughs> it was the best I ever looked in a bikini. So you know what? I wasn't expecting that either, but I lived. I survived through it. And you know, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm I'm quite happy to say I get regular meals and I, I can buy, you know, whatever I need when I need it. But I've also realized that I can live this like much different, less materialistic lifestyle. And I'm not sure if I would have stayed in my situation if I ever would have had that realization. I, I, I think I would be miserable if I were still around um, because it was pretty that depressing really in my life. Um, I think I would still be quite miserable and maybe I would have the latest Louis Vuitton bag or I'd be taking trips to Europe three times a year or whatever it was that defined my perfect existence, but I wouldn't have been happy and I'm quite happy now and it all worked out. So I think a long-winded way of telling people, if you really feel like you need to make a change, don't let fear keep you from making the change. I mean, be smart about it, be, be positive about it, but don't let fear keep you in a place where your heart isn't singing every day because all that's going to end up making you is a bitter old person in a place you hate being. And you can move to the Caribbean and be a bitter old person in a beautiful place with warm weather and tropical seas. So, I mean, really, what's the downside to that? Wow, you're beautiful. Thank you so much. We love you <laughs> and you're truly an inspiration to me and I think the audience because you're living it. You designed it and, and well done. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. I hope I didn't scare anyone away, anyone away from making changes to live their ultimate life. But, you know, it's, it's a good thing to do. And I'm really happy I did it. And eight years in, I have no regrets whatsoever. Awesome. awesome. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you again for joining me and Liz on this episode. We really like and appreciate you coming every week and listening to these stories that I hope are inspiring you to maybe take that first step out into the unknown and make that change that you know, is so necessary for maybe your life situation that you're in right now. Please remember to subscribe. Please remember to comment. All tremendously helpful. If you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do it on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that fans of Misfits and Rejects can support me on. It's patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects. It's a monthly donation, whatever you want. Um, all is extremely helpful and appreciated. So with that said, I want you all to know that I think you are all so very beautiful. Keep designing and inspiring those around you with the life that you've always wanted. And I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that 
I interview, inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.